We're going to continue our series called Upside Down. I'm going to start off with a quote that I heard from Pastor Brady Boyd. And he's, it's very simple, but we have to remember it. He said, if you want the kingdom of God, you have to do it the Jesus way. If we want the kingdom of God, we have to do it the Jesus way. And it's, and it's easy to justify other ways. It's easy to look for alternatives to other ways to try to see the kingdom of God come about. But if we want the kingdom of God, we have to do it the Jesus way. What is the Jesus way? It's what we've been looking at last week and what we will look at for the next few weeks. Uh, the Jesus way ultimately is found in the Sermon on the Mount and what he preached there. And, and it starts off with these beatitudes, these things that he says, blessed are you, blessed are you to see the kingdom if you can enter through these ways. And, he, and we talked about that last week. So if you missed it last week, we talked about blessed are the poor in spirit. And this week we go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. It says, blessed are those who mourn. Now this is why it's an upside down kingdom. Because these are things that we don't normally think of as being blessed. Those who are mourning, uh, entering into a blessing or even experiencing the kingdom of God. But it says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. How many of you guys have ever mourned the loss of someone close to you? Maybe a loved one of some sort or even a relationship that was broken off. We, we go into mourning. I, I remember it was 2002 and my grandmother passed away in 2002. And in fact, um, both of uh, my grandmothers passed away in 2002 and also both of Becca's grandmothers passed away all in the same year. So we lost all of them in the same year. And I remember going into that funeral and telling myself, I'm not going to let myself get emotional. I'm not going to let myself, I won't, I'm not gonna cry, I can handle this. I'm gonna you know, do, do this and be strong. And I did, and I sat through that, that funeral and I didn't cry, I didn't get emotional, I didn't do any of those things. And, but later on, I ended up having a harder time trying to process what had happened. Because I tried to skip the mourning process. But whenever I try to skip a step in the mourning process, it costs me. It was a lot harder later for me to process that. Now, that, that's what we typically think of when we hear the word mourn. But the way that this scripture is talking about the word mourn, it, it has less to do with mourning the loss of a loved one and more, more to do with mourning the law or mourning sin in our life and leading us to repentance. Let me read it to you in the Amplified Version it says this, gives us a little more clarity. It says, blessed, forgiven, refreshed by God's grace are those who mourn over their sins and repent. For they will be comforted when the burden of sin is lifted. How many of you guys have ever experienced that before? Like you felt the burden of sin just lifted off of your life, right? So that's what this scripture is talking about. Of course, we can apply it to other things as well, but in a similar way with my grandmother, how I tried to skip past the mourning try to skip a step, and it became harder. Many times when it comes to things in our life, and especially if there's an area in our life where we're living in sin, if we try to skip over the mourning and repentance part and just try to move beyond it, eventually it becomes harder in our life because we have missed a step in the process. Now, let me be clear from the outset I want to be clear about this. God is not waiting up in heaven for us to sin and then waiting to slam us over the head every time we sin. He's not doing that. God is not trying to put shame and punishment on us and feel shame when we sin. He, how many of you guys know that on the cross, Jesus took our shame. He took our punishment so that we don't have to experience shame and punishment. Amen, right? But, but 
At the same time, there's something wrong in us if we don't feel something when we're walking in sin. If we don't feel some sort of pain when we're walking in sin, and in fact, that can be a good thing that we feel some sort of pain as a warning sign when we're walking in sin. I mean, think about it with your kids, like with a hot stove. You teach them not to, teach, not to touch the hot stove because you know if they touch the hot stove, there will be pain. And how many of you guys know the closer you get to the hot stove, the more pain you start to feel? That should be a warning sign. And that's what this morning is. It's like when we realize that there's sin in our life, there ought to be some level of, of you know, pain, of godly sorrow in our hearts. Now, and, you know, sometimes we think, well, it'd just be great to live life without any pain. How you guys, are you getting older and you start feeling more pain, right? Like, I did that the other day. I got up out of the chair. My kids were there. I got up out of the chair, and I made one of those dad noises getting out of the chair. I was like, ah, you know, I'm just getting up, you know? It's like, I, I, I don't want to feel that, that pain, you know? Sometimes you're sitting too long or whatever. And we think it would be awesome if we just never felt pain in our life. But... How many of you guys have even, some people have these medical conditions where they don't feel any pain or anything like that, and they end up injuring themselves because they don't feel the warning signs that lead up to the injury. And so that's, in a similar way, that's what this does for us. It helps us and, and to feel that. But what tends to happen to a lot of people is they end up becoming callous to pain over time. They end up becoming callous to sin over time. And so we end up walking pain-free in our minds, but what's really happened is not that there's not pain or that we shouldn't be feeling some sort of pain. It's that we've become callous to it. We've ignored it. We've moved on. And the story that came to mind for me this week as I was preparing this is a, sto a story of David. And we know that David was a guy who had a tender heart towards God. I mean, he worshiped God. He's a worshiper, man. And he, he has a tender heart towards God. We know his famous stories. You know, he slayed the giant. He did all these things. He was anointed king, all this stuff. But then we come to this chapter in his life that wasn't so great. And many of us know what it is. But let's, let's look at this story that happened to David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In verse 1, it says, In the spring of the year, in the time when the kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. The, the first problem is David wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was supposed to be out where, where the kings were doing kingly things, but he had stayed back and he had placed himself in the wrong place. So he, he placed himself in the wrong place. It happened late one afternoon when, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful and David sent and inquired about the woman and the one said, that is, is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Oops, that's the problem now, right? Now David has a problem. He gave in to sin, and this is the moment where he should, the tender heart towards God should have said, I, I have sinned, should have gone into some sort of mourning, felt the pain of the sin, and, and repented and found a way to repent, but that's not what David did. David then took one sin and, and started another sin to cover up the first sin. 
And all along the way, he starts to become more callous. And so he finds out who, who his, her husband is. And she's, he says, bring him here. And so he brings him in and he starts talking to Uriah. And he says, hey, Uriah, how's the battle going? How's Joab doing? Is he doing a good job? He's like, you're doing such a great job. I'm going to give you the day off. You know, why don't you go back to your house? And he's trying to cover up his sin. He's hoping that if Uriah goes into the house, then no one will think that it was his child. And so he goes that night and turns out, Uriah slept on the doorpost door, door of the king's house instead of the doorpost of his house. And he's like, why didn't you go down to your house? And he's like, how can I go down to my house and enjoy life when my brothers are out of battle? And here Uriah is being more courageous and more honorable than David was in this moment. So this was another moment when David could have come clean, but all along the way his heart has become harder and it's become more callous. And so he gets Uriah drunk to try to send him back down to his house. He still doesn't go. So finally, he's got to come up with another plan. And so he, he tells his commanders, he said, go out into the thickest part of the battle, put Uriah at the front of it, and at the, the worst part of the battle, all of your men withdraw except for Uriah. And so they do that. Uriah gets killed. Looks like an accident. Looks like David's hands are clean, but David's heart's becoming harder. Watch what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26. It says, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But David just went on with life. David was under the conviction, under really the judgment of God, but he just went on with his life as if nothing had happened. You realize that sometimes you can be just going through life and everything seems fine, but when your heart is callous towards God, you may not realize that you're living a life that's opposed to God because you've become so callous to God. And so David is living a life that's opposed to God, he's callous to God, and then this famous moment happens where a prophet comes to David. Nathan the prophet comes up to David and, and he says, David, I've got to tell you a story about something I've heard about. And so David's like, okay, well, what's, what's going on? And, and so Nathan begins to tell him this story. He says, there's a, a guy, there's a rich guy and a poor guy living around here. And the rich guy has a lot of flocks, a lot of sheep, a lot of stuff. And he's like, you know, he's very wealthy. And then this poor guy, he just, he's, he's, he doesn't have a lot of stuff. He's got this one lamb, though. And this lamb to this poor guy is, is I mean, it's everything to him. He, he, raises, he raised this lamb in his house. This lamb eats out of his hand and eats the, from the bowls of his house. This lamb he raised with his children, it's like a daughter to him. He loves this lamb. It's all he's got. And one day there was an out-of-towner coming into town to the rich man's house. And instead of the rich man taking one of the lambs to, one of the, the sheep to butcher from his own flock, which he had many, he could have butchered one and fed this traveler. He goes and he takes the lamb from the poor guy. And he kills that lamb and feeds it to his friend. What do you think ought to be done with the guy who did something like that? Watch what happens 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, it says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, he says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he, because he had no pity. And then I can just imagine this iconic movie moment where this drama begins to happen. And 
you know, I don't know if there's lightning outside or something, but Nathan kind of points up his finger to David and he says, David, you are that man. God blessed you with all this stuff. God blessed you with all of this. And you went and you took Uriah's precious wife. And at this moment, there was something that woke up in David. David's conscience finally woke up. Like the Holy Spirit, I guess, finally broke through and David realized his sin and he was broken and he was torn up about it. He finally had to own it. He finally had to own it. And so for us that may be living this way and maybe we want I mean, there's not a person here that if you realize what happens when you become callous to sin, you don't really want to go down that place. We really want to wake up to that. But it starts off with us realizing that we have to own that. We have to start someplace. And so I've got two clips today, both of them from Jimmy Evans. And the first clip, he talks about this idea and how it affects us in marriage. And you can apply it to your marriage but I also want you to apply it to your relationship with God and how maybe sometimes this is the way we are with God. When we need to be all in, sometimes we end up being this way. So listen to Pastor Jimmy. We get married and something bad starts happening and what happens is because our heart is broken and our expectations are getting crushed, when the marriage needs us the most, we give it the least amount of attention. This is a renter's mentality versus an owner's mentality. If you live in a house, Let's say that you live in a house worth $100,000. And let's say you're renting that house. And the landlord comes and knocks on the door and says to you, you know, this house we found out has foundation trouble, serious foundation trouble. And the walls need repair, the ceiling needs repair, the roof needs repair, and the foundation needs repair. It's going to cost $50,000. And so if you want to continue to live in this house, you're going to have to pay $50,000 to live here. And you're a renter. Well, not a sane person on earth is going to spend $50,000 repairing a house that's not theirs. That's a renter's mentality. But if you're the owner of the house and your parents left you the house and you're going to live there the rest of your life and pass it on to your children, it's a little different thing. And someone comes to you and you're the owner and they say, unfortunately, we found out that your house has foundation trouble. And if you want to continue to live in this house, you're going to have to fix the foundation. As an owner, a generational owner of the house, it's a very simple equation. It doesn't matter how much it costs. I'm going to be here the rest of my life. Of course, I'll fix it. If you get married with a renter's mentality, when you start having problems in the marriage, what happens is it's like, I don't know if I'm going to be here much longer. I, I don't know if I'm committed to marriage. I didn't know that they were this demonic. I calculated his name, 666. I don't know if I can take it. And so, you know, I don't know. And what happens is you develop a renter's mentality. When the, when the marriage needs you the most, it's got foundational trouble. Of course it has trouble. We're all messed up. You find out that it's got all these problems and what happens is when the marriage needs you to get involved and to pray and do the right thing, what happens is you kind of scoot and put a foot out the back door. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to stay. I don't know if this thing's going to work. And so you become a renter that will not roll up your sleeves and work to fix the problems rather than become an owner that says, I am married till death do us part. Of course I'm going to do what it takes. I'm here for the rest of my life, baby. I am not going anywhere. When I said till death to us part, I meant till death to us part. Not murder, death. <laughs> of course I'll pay whatever it takes. I'm going to be here from now on. And when you have that owner's mentality, the devil can't chase you off. When you have a renter's mentality, it's a very, very diff difficult 
thing in the marriage. So you could apply that to your marriage, but let's think about our relationship with God. How many times are we with God when things get tough, when God wants to do a deep work in us and he wants to go to the difficult places in our heart? How many times do we kind of step back and say, I don't know if I signed up for that, or I don't know if I'm willing to let you go there. We become renters with God. And when we do that, it costs us some things. So what mourning does, when we begin to go in this mourning process of sin, we begin to deal with it, in other words, it allows us time for reflection, and reflection gives us a new perspective. You're not going to ever see the new place where you need to be unless you take that time to go through that process to realize where you're at. And so I want to give you three areas that a failure to mourn robs us of, or robs us in, and there could possibly be many more, but I felt directed to these areas. And the, the first area, if we fail to go through this process to mourn and repent of sin in our life towards God and towards each other, it robs us of our fellowship, not just with God, but with one another. You say, well, I thought I'm a child of God all the time. I thought I'm a son or a daughter of God all the time. Yeah, you are. That's your relationship. But in a, in a marriage, for example, you know, I, I'm married, but how many of you guys know there are some times when our relationship status has not changed, but sometimes in a marriage, your fellowship can change, Right? You might not be experiencing the same level of fellowship even though you're in the same relationship. The same is true with God. We're, I'm always a son. You're always a daughter. But sometimes when sin and things in our heart gets callous, it affects our, our fellowship with God, that our fellowship with God becomes friction, becomes frustrated, becomes hard because there's, there's this sin in our life that we haven't dealt with. And it becomes, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it says, but if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. How many of you guys are thankful for the blood of Jesus? See, it's the blood of Jesus that makes this fellowship possible. But if we're stepping back, we got one foot in, one foot out, and we're saying, I don't really know if I want to go there, then our fellowship becomes under fire and our fellowship has friction. And we have to if we really want to have true fellowship with one another, if you want to have deep fellowship with the spouse or with friendships or with people in your church or with God, you know what it requires? It requires being honest with one another. It requires being open with one another. And I, I have this phrase come up in me all the time, and it's, and it's this, that there's no intimacy without honesty. If you want to have an intimate relationship with somebody but you plan on being dishonest, it's impossible. You will never have an intimate, close relationship with anyone that you're not willing to be honest with. And that goes for God, too. Like, if we're not willing to be honest with God, even though God sees it all, knows it all, we're not going to have an intimate relationship with God. We're not going to have that fellowship with God. And so a failure to mourn over our sin, it really costs us fellowship. And so Nathan comes to David and he points that out and he says, he says David, here, here's your issue. How many of you guys know that sometimes we need some people in our life to help us to see things that are blind spots we can't see? I've said this before, but if you really want to be open and honest with somebody, ask them this question. I have very few people take me up on this because it's a difficult question to ask somebody. If you want to be open and honest with somebody, you want to start that process, you could ask this question. What is it that everyone knows about me, but no one is willing to say? And you guys know, and, and if you ask that question, do not punish them for their answer. <laughs> do not justify whatever they say. But just if you really want to find out, 
Go to a trusted friend and say, what is it? Like, I'm not gonna punish you. I'm not gonna make it. I'm just going to take what you say and I'm gonna pray about it. Like, that's a, that's a way to start. Now, you have to be careful who and how you do that with and all that type of stuff. So I'm saying use wisdom in that. But I'm saying if you wanna start a, a, a question like that, especially with a spouse even, you can just say, what, what are you thinking about that has been hard for you to say? And you don't, you don't punish them. You don't, you, that's how you start to have intimacy with honesty. Second, second thing is this that it robs us of. It robs us of our potential. It robs us of God's purposes in our life. You know, a while ago, a couple years ago, we had chickens and laying hens and we, we got eggs and all that kind of stuff. You guys know, I mean, you came to church to find out that chickens lay eggs, right? So you're like, thank you, Pastor Sean, for telling us that information. But I did find out some information a long time ago when I was reading about chickens and eggs and trying to figure out how much they would produce, you know, per day and all that type of stuff. That I, I found out in one of the places I was reading that they say that a chicken, a laying hen, will have as many eggs as they can potentially lay in them at birth. Like from the very beginning, they have the exact number that they are able to lay already there, which I thought was crazy, right? That it was, it's already there. From, and I thought, wow, that's, that's crazy. But here's the thing. Do you know that, that chickens do not lay all the eggs that are in them? Because, and I go, you're like, why did I come to church today? Uh, but they do not lay all of the eggs that are in them because chickens do not lay eggs in the wrong conditions. We discovered this. Like, if it's not warm enough, the chickens won't lay the eggs. If it's not, if it's too hot, if it's too cold, uh, if there's a storm going on. I, mean, I had a chicken one day, storm went on, just boom, dead. Just fell over dead. Just got scared. Just died. But I was like, wow, you know, but in a storm, I'm, I'm not kidding, but in a storm, they won't lay, they won't, certain seasons, they won't lay eggs. So what am I saying? I'm just saying, what if, let's just translate that just for a little bit into our life. Like, what if from the very beginning, the Bible says that God, before you were in your womb, God knew you. What if God placed all the potential dreams, purposes, plans, and visions on the inside of you at birth? But what if in the same way, we're not able to manifest those things because we're living in the wrong conditions. How many times have we been robbed of the plans and purposes of God maybe because we've been too busy living two different lives or living a life outside of God's purpose and God's plan for our life? We're so busy like David was trying to cover up our sin that we don't have time to live in the purposes and plans of God. And so a failure to go through this process of mourning and repenting actually robs us of our potential. And then finally, I just wanna hit this one, that it robs us of our confidence. Our confidence before God, or of course our confidence before others, but our confidence before God is really the most important thing. You may have heard this scripture before in 1 John chapter 3, verse 31, or 21. It says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, how many of you guys have ever found yourself in, in sin and then Satan comes in and tries to bring shame, tries to bring condemnation? By the way, Shame and condemnation are not what it means to have godly sorrow. But Satan sure takes that open door and he brings, God, he brings this shame and condemnation in. And then we don't have confidence. The one place we need to run is to God 
Because there, there we will find grace and help in time of need. But because of that, because we haven't properly understood who God is, we haven't properly understood how we need to walk through that process of repentance, then what happens is Satan comes in with shame and condemnation and we wallow in that and we lose our confidence before God. Let me just say this, condemnation is from the enemy. Condemnation is what tries to get us to pay back what we've done in the past. But conviction of the Holy Spirit is for the future to get us to change for the future. That's how you know whether you're hearing from Satan or whether you're hearing from God. Is this condemnation trying to get me to wallow in shame to pay back? Or is this conviction leading me to change for the future? All right, the, the second clip from Jimmy Evans is really helping us walk into this next level. And if you're serious about this, if God is hitting you in some area of your life, pay close attention to this because this is a key for us to walk through this process of mourning and repentance. Take a look. There's one other truth I wanna mention and just read a scripture and I'm done. This is the second truth about greatness. Every, everyone makes mistakes but only great men and women take responsibility for them and become greater through them. Everybody, we've all made mistakes. We've all, we've all visited the rooftop and we've all abandoned the battlefield at certain times. So we've all done it, not, not just a few, I've done it too. David did it and he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, as I mentioned earlier. Psalm 51 is the record of what happened after Nathan visited David. And Psalm 51 begins with these words, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And listen to what David's response was. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. In the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you may have broken will rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. He was a bad sinner, but he sure was a good repenter, wasn't he? I'm telling you, when it came time to repent, that's like the A number one repent right there. If you're in bad trouble, just read that. David said, against you and you only have I sinned. He coughs it up. He doesn't blame anybody. He could have said, Lord, have you seen Bathsheba? Have you seen this one? He could have blamed his mom and dad. He could have blamed, yeah, he could have blamed anybody. Couldn't have blamed the government because he was the government. He blamed everybody else. No blame. He owned it. That's why David was a great man. David ended well. David recovered from this. There were a lot of heartache that was caused by it. David recovered from this. And we can recover from anything because our God is a gracious God who will forgive us for any sin. Did you know that? He'll forgive us for anything. But when we've sinned, 
We have to take responsibility for it. Every great man and woman of God is someone who takes responsibility for their own problems and takes it before God. God's a forgiving God. I'm saying, I'm saying to you, you're called, you're called to greatness. You were created by a great God in your mother's womb. And if you're a person, you've invited Christ into your life, you've not just been washed by his blood, you've been made a king and a priest. It's who you are. You're a ruler and a minister. And the greatest fulfillment in your life will be as you become that in your home, over your own life, in helping other people and fulfilling the call that's on your life. That's, that's how greatness will happen in your life. But it won't happen on the rooftop. Whether it's retirement or sin or fear. My encouragement to you is don't let anything defraud you of the call that's on your life and don't let anything keep you from the battlefield. So God has a purpose for your life. But we gotta take responsibility, we gotta own it. I know this is kind of a serious, weighty message, but I believe what God is doing in our church in this season is he's causing us to mature. He's causing us to grow up. He's causing us to grow in God. And I am thankful for the grace of God. You know, the grace of God is what makes all of this possible for us to walk through this. So what, what I wanna do is, is I wanna give you three things that you need to do if you want to really walk this out. Okay, they're very, very simple, but they're not, not easy things. <clears throat> three things, I'll try to move very quickly through them. The first thing is this. If you wanna walk through this process, invite the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Again, not condemnation. You're not gonna wallow in sin. You're gonna invite the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Psalms chapter 139, verse 23 and 24 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You realize that search me, O God, is a pretty gutsy prayer. And here's why it's gutsy. It's gutsy because God doesn't need to search you. Because God already knows everything. The search me, O oh God, is not for God to try to discover something he didn't know. The search me, O oh God, is you opening up the door so that when God points something out, you've already pre-agreed to obey and to walk out in repentance. So we invite the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our life because we know that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not going to harm us, it's going to heal us. It's going to make us better. It's going to make us closer to God. It's going to make us have more joy, have more peace, have more hope. But it, it doesn't mean it's without pain to go through that process. And so we invite, number one, we just invite, say, Holy Spirit, just say, God, just search my heart. Point out anything. If I become callous in any way, rip that off. Show me for, for what it is so that I can walk in freedom. Number two is this. It's like Pastor Jimmy talked about, take full responsibility. So what a lot of times we want to do is we want to blame other people, blame other situations. We're good at pointing out other people's sins, but we're not so good at recognizing our own. We can see that in Luke chapter 18, verse 10 through 14. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray. They're at a prayer meeting, and one, one of them a Pharisee, and the other's a tax collector. So you kind of have the opposite ends of the spectrum. You have religious, over-religious people, and then you have this tax collector who's known for not being religious. And the Pharisee is standing by himself and prayed thus. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, 
Like, this is a great prayer, right? You know, he's like, thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like the extortioners. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer or even like this guy over here, this tax collector over here. I mean, just imagine this in a prayer meeting. And they're like, yeah, just I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector was standing afar off, and he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, you will be humbled. You will walk in humility. It's either by choice or by, by uh, circumstance. But you will have humility in your life. And we get to choose which one it is. And so we, what we need to do is we need to take full responsibility. We have got to be quick to repent. And let me tell you something about the process of repenting with God Yes, but also with others. If you have some issues that you need to deal with other people, first of all, I wanna, want you to know this. This is not your opportunity to go around and to point out sin in other people. <laughs> this is your opportunity to look inside and say, what do I need to repent of? And let me tell you something about taking responsibility. If you need to deal with something with somebody else in your life right now, let me tell you, sorry is not repentance. It may be part of the repentance process, but it's not repentance because sorry simply says, I'm sorry that this happened. Sorry says, I'm sorry that, that this, this pain here. Sorry is just part of the repentance, but it's not all of the repentance. And let me tell you what else. Forgiveness, like forgive me, is not repentance. It may be part of repentance, but it's not the totality of repentance. Because how many of you guys know if, if I'm in Christ and you come and you ask me to forgive you, I will forgive you because of Christ forgave me. That's an automatic. That's part of repentance, but that's not the totality. Repentance is, is saying all of those things, but it also says I take responsibility. I own it, and I'm going to do whatever I can to make it right. I'm going to change the way I think about this situation, and I'm going to walk in God's ways from here on out. That's repentance. That's a lot harder. And so we have to take responsibility for it. And then number three is this. We gotta bring it into the light. Whatever lives in darkness is gonna stay in darkness. It's gonna keep producing darkness. But whenever you can bring something into the light, and this may be not for every situation, but there may be situations in your life and in your heart right now that you've been keeping in the darkness that you may need to bring it into the light some way. You may need to confess this to something, to somebody. You may need to somehow bring this into the light because if we want to live free, we have to live in the light. Go back to that 1 John 7 through 9. It says this, but if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So if we're saying, listen, I got no, nothing to deal with, it's probably because we've become callous in our hearts somewhere. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us, but here it is. If we confess our sins, he is how many of you guys are thankful for this, that he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even if you bring something to the light and you're dealing with something relationally with somebody here on earth, they may not forgive you. They may be frustrated with you, but I'm thankful that Jesus always forgives. He always cleanses us and we're always made right with him. But there may be times when we have to confess these things. My son, Sean, when he was still living in the house, we had a curfew set, like what time you have to be home. And I forget, it was like 11 or 12 o'clock or something. And when, they, when the kids first start driving, we would like stay up and we would wait for them to come home and like, are they gonna make it? You know, are they in trouble? And then after a while, we're like, 
I'm tired. I'm just going to bed. Like, I'm sure they'll make it out all right. I'm sure they do it every time. And so, so they would go out and we would just go to sleep and wake up in the morning. Car's there. They must have made it home. Okay. And uh, so one day that happened and, and uh, Sean came to me and he said, Dad, I need to tell you something. I was like, okay. He said, last night I blew my curfew. I went past my curfew. Now, how many of you guys know he didn't have to do that? I didn't know about it. I probably never would have known about it. But what he demonstrated there was the difference between confessing your sin and being caught in your sin. A lot of people think that when they get caught in their sin and they reveal it, that they've confessed their sin. That's not confession. That's being caught. Confessing your sin is bringing your sin into the light before you have to. So when we talk about confessing our sins right now, it's not waiting till you get caught to fess up. It's right now before, while it's still in darkness, you voluntarily bring it into the light. The only way to overcome darkness is by bringing it into the light. And here's the good news. God wired us to live in the light. He, he wired us to live and to flourish in the light. So much so that when that you know you feel miserable when there's something in you that's living in darkness. I've shared this story before, but, and I'll have the worship team come back as as we get ready to close, but I found this fascinating. In 2004, there was a businessman from Maryland. He wanted to, he was just curious if people would anonymously reveal their secrets. And so what he did is he printed up 3,000 postcards that were self-addressed so they would come back to him. And he said something like, share your secret or whatever he put on the thing and mail it back. And he placed them all over the place. And to his surprise, people mailed them back. And all of, like, all these people mailed in, and they were all sorts of secrets, stuff they had never shared with anyone, you know, suicidal thoughts, horrible things they had done, crimes they had committed, all sorts of things, relational issues with their, you know, like confessing to affairs they had had that their spouse didn't know. I mean, all this stuff, and this guy was blown away. Eventually, over the next four years, something like 300,000 of them came in as he kept going, turned into a website. I don't know if it still exists or not. But the point is, People were so burdened and needed to live in the light so bad that they were willing to do anything it took just to bring it into the light, even if it was confessing it to a stranger. Because God has wired us to live in the light. And when we're in darkness, we, we feel a certain level of torment that's not healthy or godly. But when we bring it into the light, God brings healing. So as we close, would you guys stand up? I'm going to read one last verse and give us a time to respond to God. And here's the verse. James 5, 16 says this, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as, it, as it's working. It says confess your sins to one another because you're gonna be healed as you do it. Let me tell you, as a pastor, I've had, I can't tell you how many countless times somebody's come to me and said, Pastor Sean, I just need to tell somebody this. I just need to confess this. And I can't, I mean, you'd be shocked at all the things that I've heard <laughs> over the years. But as people begin to reveal these things that they maybe even hadn't told anyone, I said, you know what's happening right now? James 5, 16. As you're bringing this to the light, as you're confessing this out loud, healing is happening in your heart in a way that it could never happen otherwise. You can do everything else, but, but the word of God is true. Whenever we bring it to the light, healing does start to happen. 
And so you may need to do that with somebody. But regardless, let's take just a moment and let's just invite the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our heart. It's the best thing that we could do. We're not to wallow in shame. If you start sensing that, rebuke that. That's, that's not the way of God. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit leads us to the cross of Christ. It leads us to lay down our burdens. It leads us, he leads us to, to move beyond our sin, to put them at the foot of the cross, to confess them, to take responsibility and to say, this has no place in my life. And if I want to experience the kingdom of God in my life, I've got to do it the Jesus way. Let me read that last scripture one more time, or that first scripture one more time. Blessed, forgiven, refreshed by God's grace are those who mourn over their sins and repent. For they will be comforted when the burden of sin is lifted. This is no doubt talking about those who are coming to Christ and needing to be saved. And if that's you, I've got good news for you. Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered hell. He conquered the grave. All of your sin has been nailed to the cross as you, can, as you begin to repent of your sins and that burden of sin can be lifted off your life right now. You can do that even right now where you're at. Just say, Jesus, I want to follow you. But it also applies to us who've been following Jesus for a long time for any time, that if we find any conviction of the Holy Spirit that says you need to deal with that, you need to release that, you need to make that right. The fruit of grace, we, we don't work for grace, but the fruit of grace is repentance and obedience. How you know that grace is working in your life is repentance and obedience follows. It's not a requirement to get it, but it should be fruit of it. And so let's just Let's just pray right now and just if the Holy Spirit needs to deal with anything in your heart, just allow him. Remember, open up every door, open up every room. So Lord, we just give it all to you. Lord, we wanna live your way. And so we open up every room of our heart. We're so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful that on the cross, you took care of all of this. And that the safest place that we can live is in the light. So Holy Spirit, come and bring conviction. We bind any condemnation from the enemy, but we invite the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now. We say work at the deep places in our heart. We're so thankful that when you do that, you set us free and that you turn those graves into gardens. You turn those dark places into light. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, let's worship one more time.